opening God's Word. Just as, because sometimes I feel like I hear God's Word, and it's competing with a hundred other voices already going on in my head. Anybody ever been there before? Yeah. I just want to spend a moment of stillness so that whatever voices are running around in your head, whatever worries, concerns, fears, oh man, i got to fix lunch later, like whatever those things are that go on in your head, just lay those out before God. You can whisper them to Him. You can write them down, whatever it is. But I just want to give us all a moment of silence, something that may be a gift to many of you. And just spend a moment just letting God just settle your heart in your mind. So let's just spend a moment of silence right now. God, I do believe that silence is a gift from you. Because it finally makes me confront all those things I've been running from and trying to avoid. <laughs> and it actually forces me to ask myself, God, do I really trust you with these things? Do I trust you with my life? Do I trust that you are working and that you are good and that you are in control where I am not? And so, Father, I pray that your word when it hits us today, you say that when you speak, that it's like water on the earth. That it nourishes the earth. And I pray that when you speak, that it'll do that same thing to our hearts and our minds. That it will heal. That it will set free. That it will, will liberate us to chase after the purpose that you have for us and become the people you called us to be. In Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, Amen. 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 Sometimes I just want to keep that silence going right through the sermon because I just feel like a lot, a lot is happening right there, at least for me. But today uh, we're going to close out a four-week series we've been calling Made for Mission. Uh, this series, in essence, has been asking the question, how can you and I discover that unique God-given purpose that He's given us? You know, each week we've been laying out, walking our way through that question. Now, I know some of you weren't here because of snow last week. That's all right. But let me just re briefly recap where we've been thus far. So then in week one, we talked about the big why. You know, what, what, what is the purpose of this whole thing? What is our shared mission together? And we draw right out, right from Matthew 28, where Jesus says, You're to be my disciples, a.k.a. my apprentices, those who are becoming people of love like me. And as you're becoming people of love like me, you are to take that love and make disciples of all nations. In other words, lead others to become like me too. But how? Week two, we talked about how John 14, Jesus says that we're not meant to do this in our own strength, but in his strength, in his direction, because he has given us his Holy Spirit, or advocate, or the Spirit of truth to be with us. This is ringing a bell. Hopefully you guys are like, I think I remember that. But week three, last week, I know it was a lot of snow. So we took those big questions and we zeroed them in to individuals. And we said, how do you personally discover your particular role, purpose, within God's bigger mission? 
And so we laid it out. And I would encourage you, if you, if you weren't here last week, you can totally check out the sermon online and think through this on your own. Uh, but we laid out that every person is made uniquely by God with spiritual gifts, passions, abilities, personalities, unique experiences. All of these things have shaped who we are. And from those, the Holy Spirit wants to use us so that He can express His love not only to us, but through us. And therefore, we say, all right, well, this is a two-part answer. We have a purpose here as the gathered church. When we come together as a church, we come not just to receive, but also to give. And do we understand what those might be? So we laid out all the various serve teams. We talked about a lot of opportunities you could get involved here in your gifts. No guilt, right? But it's just it's ways that you, if you felt so led and find the best place for your gift to serve. But today, we're taking it beyond the gathered church, and we realize that we don't live most of our life here, do we? Nor should we live most of our life here. That if we are going to do this great commission to all the nations, then we got to get out of here and actually go to the real world, our everyday places. So what? how do we determine our purpose? Or how can we be a part of God's bigger mission as the scattered church, not just the gathered church? You guys tracking with me? A lot at you, but I'll, I'll unpack that. But before we open up God's Word, um, I've been thinking a lot about parenting lately. In part, is because of this awesome yet humbling parenting class we got going on every Wednesday night here, the month of January. Um, but also just because, well, I live with three kids. <laughs> they are mine. I would claim them. But they, three kids, six, five, and three. And actually... It's my three-year-old's birthday today, so he is fresh three today. Yeah, that's, that's why Shelby was wearing a Knox shirt up here. That's his name. We're having his party later. We have matching shirts. It's cute. But all of that said, um, living with three kids makes you start thinking, like, man, what is, what is my role as a parent? We're definitely in the early stage of parenting. I've been told that over the next 10 years, our roles and the dynamics of our home are going to change drastically. But at least right now, as a part of what it means to be a parent, I feel like my role, condensed down, is to just do whatever I can to upset their cute little expectations. (laughs) Kids are super cute, but they have super bad ideas for how to live their life. Right? I mean, like, kids... Daddy, why can't I lick the outlet switch? Daddy, why can't I have cake for lunch? Daddy, why do I have to go to bed? I think I can stay up all night and be just fine tomorrow. Daddy, I've only watched two movies today. Why can't I watch a third? Right? Like, this is their, this is like, this was like yesterday. And so my role as a parent, listen, I know my kids have good ideas sometimes, all right? But sometimes it feels like my role is just to to keep saying no, trying to explain the best I can why not, that I don't always get it, and then hopefully redirecting them toward a better decision, even when they're spitfire mad at me because I'm now crushing their dreams to be a sleep-deprived, malnourished TV zombie with scissors. But as we wrestle with all of these things and, and their expectations for life, I can't help but to stop and think, you know what, I see a boatload of parallels between my relationship with my kids and God's relationship with me. Because, you know, how many times have I come to God with my own plans, 
expectations for how life is going to work. And then after a little kicking and screaming on my part, do I find out that his plans are actually way better for me in the end? How many times have I come to God and I've said, you know what, I want to eat cake for lunch, metaphorically speaking. And he says, actually, you may not like my plan as much, but it's going to be better for you in the end. How often do I go to God expecting him to fulfill my plans, my dreams, instead of asking him first, hey, what what are your plans for me? If my kids came to me and said, hey, Dad, what are your plans for my life? (laughs) Is this for real right now? But you know what? Our home would be a lot more peaceful. Our relationship would be a lot better. And so today we're going to look at the book of Acts, particularly the first chapter. I know some of the women have been going through Acts on Wednesdays, which I think is fantastic. Uh, And they're probably doing a better job explaining it than I will. But Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. The reason being is Jesus has his own plans for, what he, for his followers. But his followers are coming to Jesus with their own set of ideas or expectations of how things should work. And so we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. But as, we, as I read these, as you follow, I want you to be asking yourself this one question. What plan do the disciples have, and how does that compare with the plan Jesus has for them? See if you can pick up on that. So we're in Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 6. If you can follow with me while I read out loud. What is the difference between the disciples' plans and Jesus' plans for them? Verse 6. Then they, being the followers of Jesus, his disciples, gathered around him, Jesus. And they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Can you repeat these words after me? Just pray these words with me. God, open my heart. Open my mind. Change my life. Show me how to be your witness. In Jesus' name, amen. So we read... 6 through 11. I'm mainly going to focus today, though, on verses 6 to 8. I just wanted to give you a little context. This is, Jesus has just risen from the dead. He has appeared to his disciples. And now he is laying out, he says, now this is what's going to happen going forward. But in those few verses, did you catch the tension between the disciples' plans versus Jesus' plans for them? Did you pick that out? And as I was reading that this week, I was thinking, oh boy, how many times do I go to God with my plans? Versus how often do I go to God actually seeking His? And the more that I wrestled with that, the more I realized if I expect God to make my plans happen, I'm ultimately settling for far less than what He has. If I go to God expecting my plans, I'm going to end up with far less than what He has. And that's certainly true with the disciples, as I'll lay out here in a second. But to give you some context here, Acts chapter 1. 
the beginning of this thrilling book. I'm hoping sometime in the next year we can walk through Acts together as a church. But Acts chapter 1 is a thrilling section. Like I said, Jesus has just risen from the dead. He's appeared to his 11 disciples. They're about to add a 12th. And he is standing before them in his resurrected body. For 40 days, he shows up to them, showing them that he is in fact, has in fact risen from the dead. And now is the time when he is about to hand over the keys to these guys. I can imagine it's somewhat similar to the way it would feel when you hand your keys over to that 16-year-old for the first time. You know they get some things, but you know there's a lot of things they don't got. (laughs) You know that they know how to drive, but that doesn't mean that their frontal lobe has been fully developed just yet. And so here are the disciples, and they're standing before Jesus, and Jesus is like, I'm going to pass this thing off to you because it's time. But he also knows that they're listening to Jesus with their own plans in the front of their mind, not his. And that becomes obvious here in verse 6. But the question they ask, they gather around Jesus and they say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Did you catch their expectations here? Maybe at least part of it. Because their question exposes that what they expect of Jesus is that he's going to come establish this political and territorial kingdom of Israel. To put it in other words, Jesus, are you going to finally come and win back this territory for the Jewish people? Jesus, are you going to finally come, kick Caesar in the face, and take over, because kick them out of this area so that we can become a world power again? Jesus, are you going to kick that fraud of a king, King Herod, off of his throne once and for all, and then finally establish yourself as king? Jesus, are you going to hook your disciple up with this cushy government job, a cushy corner office, and a dental plan? This is their expectation. And as I thought about my own life, I thought, my, you know, (laughs) how many times have I come to Jesus, and not necessarily the same words, but said, Jesus, are are you going to restore the kingdom to me now? Are you going to finally give me control over my life? Jesus, are you going to finally restore the kingdom to my family so that I don't have to worry about them anymore? Jesus, are you finally going to restore the kingdom to Trinity so everybody can look and see how successful we are as a church? Right? Are you finally going to make all our problems disappear? Are you going to make me help me become in control? Are you finally going to give me peace so I don't have to pray for people anymore? I just know they're good. Like, can you finally fix all of these things going on in my life and around me? Can you finally bring your kingdom to my reality? So many times I've come to Jesus with my plans. But over time, I've come to realize that there's a few signs. Sometimes it's hard to know when you're coming to him with your plans versus when you're actually open to whatever he has for your life. But I have noticed there are three signs to me of when I'm coming to Jesus with my plans. And I picked them up from this passage too. Number one, when I'm coming to him expecting him to fulfill my plans... I want what I want, when I want it, and it's typically right now. There's a, the, the tyranny of the urgent when I got my plans going on. 
If you notice, the disciples even said, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? For us, for me at least, I am all, I, I want to rush ahead of God. But for those of you who've been following him for a while, does that ever work out well for you? It doesn't for me either. There seems to be, in God's plan, this need to wait, to be patient, to trust. But number two sign, when I know that it's my plans that are trying to drive the ship, I'm not so much focused on becoming like Jesus as I am focused on being in control and being and feeling good. My plans, I don't want to change. I want you to change. I want my external circumstances to change. Not, I don't want to change internally. And the same thing is, I mean, this is the way we've always been, though. If my kids ever came up to me and said, Dad, can you teach me how to be patient with my sibling who's bothering me right now? <laughs> Excuse me, right? Most of the time, no. It's like, Dad, punish that person. <laughs> Trying to get them in trouble. It's always about changing everything else except me. Third sign. My plans... I see my people, but I don't tend to see those different from me. My plans typically involve those who think like me, act like me, believe like me, look like me, my tribe, my people. But rarely am I seeing outside of that. And you see the disciples, that's exactly where they were. Man, They, they said, God, are you going to restore the kingdom to my people? but there was no concern for all those that God saw. But God even told Israel, the Israelites, he said from the very beginning, it, like my plan was never just about you. Yes, it included you, but my plan involved all the nations. He said as far as back as Isaiah, he said, you are my covenant people that you might be a light for the Gentile nations, that's all the other nations of the world, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. God's heart is always seen beyond just our people. He sees our people. He loves our people. But his missional heart is always going out in compassion to those unlike us as well. And so this whole just question in Acts 1-6 makes me wonder, God, am I really interested in your plans or am I just trying to get you to fulfill mine? What am I really living for here? Because there is a massive difference, as we'll see, between what the disciples wanted and what Jesus had for them. Now, our plans aren't always bad. Many times our plans are good. And they're in line with what God has for us. But are we willing to at least bring our plans to him so that he can mold and shape them however he would want to? Are we willing to say, God, you come. I got my plans. I don't know what's of you. I don't know what's not. But I want what you want for my life. Can you mold and shape them? Because although God's plan isn't necessarily easy... His is always more life-changing and more widely impactful than anything we could dream on our own. You tracking with me? You tracking? Okay, make sure you're with me. I want to try to show you what I mean by that. 
So after the disciples lay out their plans for Jesus, he says, okay, all right, that was cute. So let me tell you, verse 7, it is not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority. And as a parent, I think I get what he's saying here. Because in essence, they're asking, well, why can't we do this? Why can't we do that? Why can't you just do this, establish this right now? And as a parent, when my kids have asked questions like that, I know that my answer is not something they'll fully understand. They'll get part of it, but I know they can't fully understand it. So my answer often is, well, because Dad says so. I want them to understand, but until they're old enough to comprehend, they're just not going to. And so it's as if the disciples are in the backseat of the car saying, why aren't we there yet? 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 And Jesus just said, trust the Father. Just trust the Father. He's got this. Notice, Jesus did not say that the kingdom wasn't coming. That's a double negative. The kingdom is coming. (laughs) But it's not coming in the way they think it's going to. And that's going to be hard for them to comprehend. And there are many things that God leads us to that we fully, we can't see. It feels like we are walking a path, but it's so foggy, all we're seeing is the next step sometimes. But following Jesus starts by admitting that we can't understand it all and learning to be at peace with that. There is always going to be a massive God-sized gap between what we can comprehend and the mysteries of the glory of God. And the reason why our God is worthy of worship is because there's that gap. If we could understand everything about him, he'd be a great friend, but he wouldn't be a God. But the fact that there is a gap between what we can understand, what he has revealed to us, and what we cannot understand, it means that is the whole reason why he's worthy of worship in the first place. So following him means that there will be plenty of opportunities, when plenty of times when we can't predict God, we can't control God, we, can't, we, can't, we don't fully understand God, but we do have to learn to trust him anyway. I mean, and if you're wondering if he's the kind of God who's worth trusting, I mean, This is the God that we proclaim every week who gave his life for us to forgive us in his love and then rose from the dead to give us new life in his power. Perhaps that is a God that we can trust. So instead of trying to control his plan, he invites us to surrender to his control. And that's what he says next in Acts 1.8. He says, don't worry about the times. Don't worry about the seasons. Don't worry about trying to control everything. But you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes on you. In other words, he's saying instead of you trying to control everything, my plan involves me having full control of you. Sometimes we don't like that. But the point is, what he's saying is that my job, it is him who fully controls us that we might become like him. Folks, the Holy Spirit is not our servant. He is the very power of God transforming us to become like Jesus. 
It is the very presence of God working in and through us. And I need us to get this, if we get anything today. That this whole thing we call Christianity, living life with Jesus, this whole thing is not just about knowing or believing some things up here and following some rituals. I don't want that. But as we see in the New Testament God that I see, it's about a living, dynamic, rearranging, transformative relationship with the God who made us and loves us. I don't know about you, that's the life I want. And that is exactly what he has laid out here for us. And as we allow God's Spirit to powerfully work within us, he says we're not just believing a message, but we begin to embody this message as witnesses. Not only will you receive power in the Spirit that comes upon you, but you will be my witnesses, he says. Now a witness, simple as I can, is someone who personally testifies to a truth. They have seen it. They have heard it. They have experienced it. Not just hearing about it from somebody else. Like this is their story. Their reality. And it's crazy to me that Jesus entrusted this world-changing message to 11, 12 witnesses. Of course, others, but really here in this final moment before he ascends to the 11, 12 witnesses. Is that enough, Jesus, to get the job done, to reach the, the world? But the more I begin to think about it, I had a friend remind me. He said, you know, most of what we know about this world is from witnesses. What is history? Historians take, if they can find it, primary documents from first-hand witnesses to give them the most accurate account as to what happened in history. What is science? Science are experts who observe experiments and then make logical deductions from what they experienced as witnesses. In the legal world, yes, we have witnesses who come up and testify, but even the, the physical evidence in a trial... How do we know that evidence hasn't been tampered with? There are a chain, there's a process of various witnesses who can write off saying this evidence has not been tampered with. So much of what we know in our world come from the accounts of what? Eyewitnesses. And then you see in the first century that so much of what they knew, they needed witnesses to carry on anything. Paper costs like a week weeks worth of wages in their day. So they weren't writing a ton of things down. Instead, it was the embodied message in these witnesses that trusted to carry this thing out. And the thing, the days that I struggle with, is this whole Christianity, Christianity thing true? One of the things that gives me so much solace in that is that we have 12 guys who saw Jesus firsthand, 40 days. And these 12 guys didn't just fizzle out. These 12 guys were killed defending the very message that they put out there. Every single one of them, we could say that John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, so he wasn't really killed, but every single one of them, except John, were killed, martyred, because they testified to the reality of what they saw. I don't know about you, I wouldn't bother being killed for something I didn't believe. 
And here they are going to their death for it. But the amazing thing is that for us today, we still have the testimony of those witnesses. We still have those apostles who, is, who have testified firsthand to what this was. I, don't, I wish I had time today to go into the, the, how reliable God's word is and why we can trust it as God's word and all the things that happen throughout history, but a lot of you would fall asleep, so I'm not going to do that. The point is, what we have is the testimony of those who saw Jesus firsthand. Passed on and passed on, and we get to read that, but not only... We are still those experiencing the living Holy Spirit alive in our own lives. Do you realize that we too are witnesses? We have experienced this thing, not only from the first hand, but we've experienced it for ourselves in the ways that God has transformed our lives. And so that a witness really is that. Someone who says, let all my life tell of who you are. And then that message, Jesus says, was never meant to just stick within our tribe. It was meant to go beyond our tribe. The disciples' vision was just limited to their nation. But Jesus said, that's a good start, right? That's a good start. But I want you to go in Jerusalem, but also Judea. But remember the Samaritans? Yeah, those guys you don't like very much. you got to go to them and even to the ends of the earth. Again, his plan was far more transformative and widely impacting than anything we could have dreamed up on our own. And if you follow the book of Acts, this is how Acts starts. The rest of the book of Acts, 28 chapters, covers 50, 60 years, talking about how that message spread from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and throughout the whole Mediterranean world. And now today, we look back as followers of Christ and realize that that, that Christianity is by far the most culturally, racially, ethnically, socioeconomically diverse belief system ever in history. It's gone out. How? People embodying, people like us, embodying that message of how Jesus has changed their lives and telling it to their coworkers, to their neighbors, folks at the barbershop, those they commute with, and so on and so forth. And we aren't at liberty to really stop telling that message and being witnesses until we've reached the ends of the earth or the end of time. But that's kind of scary, isn't it? I mean, I even... Even in saying that, I feel in this room a little angst. Like, uh uh-oh. Now he's talking about talking to people about this? (laughs) But I want to try to break this down. I want to try to cut some of the anxiety out of the room and how we think about what it means to be a witness. I'm not necessarily going to make it less costly, but at least make it more accessible to where we can wrestle with this. Because ultimately, being a witness is understanding how God has changed your life and understanding that story. So where would you even start? Where would you even start? Being a witness of Jesus begins when we discover Him at the center of our stories. Again, being a witness is not going to seminary or having all the answers or Getting, being like your favorite preacher or being a salesperson for Jesus, right? Like, it's none of those things. A witness is someone who just, you know the story of 
how God has transformed and is transforming your life. Just as each of us are made in unique ways, like we talked about last week, each of us have a unique story. But how do we discern that? How would you come to know that or write that out or to communicate it? Well, I want to give you a couple questions. And uh, can, I, can I give you a little homework? All right. Good. Thank you. little homework. Just two questions I want you to think about on your own. Number one, and this is helping determine what is that story that we have to tell. Why do you believe this message about Jesus? What brought you to the place of actually choosing to follow him? What has convinced you to go all in for Jesus? Now, some of you in here probably think, I'm not sure I believe this whole thing. So I would say to you, okay, why not? What are the big obstacles for you? What would you need to discuss, talk out, study on your own in order to wrestle with this for yourself? But then the second question, how have you experienced God in your life? What are those key points in your life when you've noticed how God's changed you? When he's altered your life? Maybe some, some way that he's entered into your everyday, ordinary life and done something you didn't see any way that that was possible. Some of you can spout out examples right now, I know. But how has God entered into your life? How have you experienced him in a real way? And I want you to take some time answering those questions on your own. But once you start wrestling with those questions and you find some what you feel like are some answers to those, next, this is is really, really important. Share that with another Christ follower. It could be with your small group. It could be your Bible study. It could be... Any one of those things, but share it with another Christ follower, someone who is following Jesus like you. Why is this so important? Two reasons. Number one, when you share your story with one another, it does allow us to get to know each other, but it allows me to say, oh man, like, like oh, I haven't thought about... The fact that God worked in your life in that way, you know what, that reminds me that he did this thing in my life. It allows us to clarify our story. But number two, sometimes we need to hear each other's stories. Because sometimes I think God was at work in one area of my life, but then someone else who's following Jesus be like, man, I'm sorry, but that doesn't exactly line up with who he is here. I might think at some point in my life, you know, I went through this crazy thing and and God was totally shaming me for the things that I experienced. I'd be like, uh, I mean, God is not a God of condemnation. That's Romans 8, 1, man. Like, I don't think that was God. (laughs) And it helps us understand, because the Word of God is meant to inform our experience. And then, as we wrestle through that together, it helps clarify for us how it is that God has been at work in our lives. You tracking with me? And then, as we gather that, as we consider our stories, that's finally the place where we can start looking at our everyday places. The barbershop, right? Workplace, those we live with our relatives, wherever, the gym. And we can start saying, God, give me the names of three or four people that I can start praying for on a regular basis. And God, give me an opportunity to share my story with them. Again, not as a salesperson for Jesus, but you're just being you, telling your story to them how it is that you've seen God reveal himself to you. And when Jesus is at the center of our story, that's when we start to discover who we are and why he's placed us here, made for mission.
Now I know that some of you guys are thinking, you're nuts if you think that I'm going to talk to anybody about faith. This is New England, Kirk. You don't talk to people, much less talk to people about faith. This is not what we do. And we have all sorts of reasons why this is just a terrible idea. I'm too busy. I'm too introverted. I, I don't, I, I'm scared. I have some friends who are not Christians, and I like to keep them as my friends. So I really don't want to tell them about my faith or my journey. And you know what? I'd say, you know what? It's true. I don't think that a lot of our friends really care about hearing about our religion. And some friends do like to get in these prideful, philosophical arguments with you, and you're just like, I don't know how to answer that. I'm bowing out. I don't think they want to hear about your religion. But I do think your friends want to know about you. And if Jesus is a key part of who you are, then why is he not in the center of that story? You know, I had a situation with a guy I was talking to who was not a Christian. And he asked me the simple question. He said, hey man, how, how did, because my wife and I are from Tennessee originally. We've been here about nine years. And he said, how did you get to New England in the first place? I said, and in that moment I was thinking in my head, I got two versions to this story. I got my version that doesn't include God and my version that does. My version that doesn't include God, ah, grad school. <laughs> my version that does include God, actually, I just felt this burden on my heart. And like, God, I know it may sound weird, but, but I just felt as I prayed and talked to God about it, like this desire to be in New England would not go away. And so I looked for an opportunity to get up here and it happened to be seminary or grad school. And and in that moment, I was talking to this guy. I had both stories in my mind. I was kind of like, which one am I going to choose today? And I was just feeling a little extra bold that day. So I said, <laughs> can I be honest with you? I love answering like that, don't you? Because you know something good's about to come. Can I be honest with you? He said, of course. I said, well, I feel like God led us to New England. It's like, uh, excuse me. And I started to break that open and explain what that was to him. And yeah, he was a little confused and he didn't exactly understand what I meant by some things. But I tried to explain it as normally as I knew how uh, to him. And he still talks to me to this day. <laughs> so all I'm saying is that each of us, we have that story. Why don't we tell the story where God's in the middle of it? Because that's really who you are. And as we begin to be honest with people about who we really are, understanding and wisdom, we start and embodying that message, we are becoming witnesses. And I know sometimes it might seem impossible. Like, you're telling me to share this with people? Listen, it's not your job to control how people respond. It's our job to simply just say yes to what God is leading us to do. And while it might seem impossible to ever get anyone to actually believe this with us, especially certain family members or whatever. I want to remind you, there's a story that I came across this week of, and I'll end with this. There's a missionary um, to China named Hudson Taylor. Anybody ever heard of Hudson Taylor before? All right, good, a few of you. Um, Hudson Taylor was a British man who felt this burning desire to go to China to tell people about Jesus. And when he went to China, he didn't go to China to make the Chinese British. <laughs> he went to China and he learned the language. He dressed like them. He acted like them. He took on their culture. He, he learned medicine so he could care for them and show them the love of God, embodying the message so that he might gain an opportunity to then be able to share who Jesus is with them. 
Hudson Taylor was in China for 51 years. And to this day, it is difficult to over-describe um, the impact of his legacy that he's left on that nation. I read a stat this week that said, by 2050, China is predicted to be majority Christian. <laughs> I don't know what part Hudson played in that, but it was a large part. But reflecting back over his life, and that impossible task, he says that in his life, I have found that there are three stages in every great work of God. First, it is impossible. Then it is difficult. Then it is done. I know it may seem impossible. It might seem difficult. We might live in those first two stages a lot of our lives. But I believe God wants to do a great work here, don't you? Not just in this church, but across our communities, our neighborhoods, everywhere. And we get to be a part of that together as those who embody this message. Amen? Let's stand up. God, thank you so much for the ways that you are actively at work in each of our lives. It may be difficult for some of us to see right now. But God, I pray that you will encourage us and build us up even by looking back over our lives to see the ways that your hand has been tangibly at work. God, that we would recognize and praise you for those things. That you give clarity as to the story that each of us have. That unique story. And then give us opportunities and names of people, faces of people whom you love dearly that we can share that message with. Just entrusting that you are and your spirit is really the one who is at work, not us. Thank you, God, uh, that, that your mission that you have for us is so much better than our plans. And we pray that you will lead us to just trust you, to just move out open-handed, saying, God, whatever you have, I want to live that today. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. amen. Let's sing this final song together.